You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So, Andrew, we have a chat on Signal. It's called Pearson Progress. It's where we post all of our improvements and general communications. It goes to everyone in the company on all sites. We call ours the HH Lean Shop. Oh, really? So you have one too? Yeah, we have a shop-wide Signal chat. Oh, that's cool. Our improvements in. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so Pearson Progress. So what happened is, okay, one of our mission statement is to advance the state of manufacturing by equipping and inspiring a community of forward-thinking manufacturers. So one of those things is like, we need to equip and inspire. And so equipping is means sell them stuff and put good product in shops and then inspire the stuff that we can't sell. We need to share it publicly, hopefully to be inspired so that they put the same stuff into practice. So one of the things, the guys, when they go, okay, we're inspirational, what are we going to do? Quotes. That's like the gut reaction to when I say we want to be inspirational. But I said, no, we want to put stuff out there like we've done for many, many years to help further the state of manufacturing. That's our calling. And so I used one of your recent posts where you guys, okay, so now you have this, this deuce on lathe, which I want to hear about, but yep. you guys made these 3D printed magnetic door openers instead of the yeah. silly key where you never know where it's at. And I told the guys in the morning meeting, I said, that is a perfect example of inspiring other companies by sharing the little things. And so I didn't hit you up for that design. It's the same hex size. We have the same brand. But I said, John, that's a great idea. John got with Kyle, who's our kind of like in-house 3D print design printer guru guy. And he came up with it. And I said, here's the process, John. I want you to print one and test the fitment on draft mode on the bamboo. And if it's good, then we'll go to the 0.16 millimeter with embedded magnets and six layers of walls. And it was such a neat thing to see an account we all follow. I didn't come across it. My guys did that follow you, saw it, ran with it, iterated, print it. And we even put our round Pearson stickers on it to brand it. So shout out to Henry Holsters for the inspiration. Yeah, That was a thing. I had not messed around with the electrical cabinet on the Doosan really at all. And so I hadn't yet encountered the frustration of having to open and close that cabinet with a hex. Right. And Nick and Chris had been messing with it and are like, this is annoying. It is. And it's an annoyance we've all lived with forever. We have four Doosans. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't need to open up the electrical cabinet at the back of a machine that often, but occasionally. Yeah. And if I have to walk around to the back of the machine and then go, oh, smack myself in the head and then go walk across the shop to find the key or find a hex wrench, Mm -hmm. that's completely needless. Yeah. Totally non-value added, complete waste of time. Right. But we actually had several people hit us up for that file and we just gave them copies of the file. But there are a lot of Doosan lathes out there. And I don't know of anybody else who's done that yet. And it's such a nice fix, but we stole that idea from ourselves. Mm-hmm. We did that exact same thing to all the side sheet metal cover panels on all of our brother CNC's. Oh, we okay. took out the eight millimeter panhead Allen key, Allen drive screws, uh-huh. and then press fit knobs in so that when you go to clean the machine down, Oh, you just uh, almost turn all it. those side panels are held with four screws in the four corners, but yeah. the whole bottom edge sits in a lip. So it's already constrained. You don't even need the bottom pair of screws. So mm-hmm. we stripped out, we just removed and didn't yeah. replace all the bottom screws around all those panels and then replaced the top hex drive screws with knobs. 
Yeah. Which means you can walk over to any machine and with two hands, just quickly spin those back. We put captive plastic washers on them so they don't fall out. You just loose them till they disengage. They stay in the door. You lift the whole panel out, clean mm-hmm. the machine, set it back, spin them in. And so we've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. And Nick took that exact same idea, made it a little bit bigger, built the hex on the front of it, stuck some mm-hmm. magnets in it, and it's beautiful. It works yeah. great. I love it. Okay, here's our podcast title because I'm going to talk about something that we kind of touched on at the, in the last episode. It, it's the power of deletion. So right there, you took out two of the four screws, which were not needed, and right. you deleted the need for an Allen wrench to do the two top screws. And you just, essentially, you answered the question where the question was asked, I need to undo this. Where's the tool to undo it? It is right here. Right here. It, take it off. <laughs> That's something we've been leaning into like, hey, the best blank is no blank. Like the best Kanban card is no Kanban card. And the way that you do that, you question, you see like we've done it this way. Do we need to keep doing it this way? We question it. And then we just try simplifying, which safety, quality, simplicity, speed, simplicity trumps speed. So let's see if we can simplify processes and just inventory and all that stuff. But you know what? Going back to that full circle is that our initial solution to where is the stupid key to unlock the power cabinet, we 3D printed a key holder. So at least we standardize by putting it in a place. But you only find that out when you get to the back of the machine, you're like, oh, shoot. Now I got to go back around to the front of the machine, get the holder, put it back, open it, and then remember to put it back. You didn't put the key on the back of the cabinet right where you'd use it? No, because there's the most often use of the key is on the front panel to adjust the chuck pressures. Ah, yeah, gotcha. So, so yeah, yeah. and now every hex panel on all Dusons have a Pearson a workholding branded knob. So it's great, amazing. Yeah, and those kind of things. Like, why does Dusan not offer that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> why did now, they put hexes to to begin with? Why not just I, put knobs? I know it's probably a safety thing. Yeah, there are certainly reasons why in a lot of facilities you would not want somebody to just be able to walk up and open up a machine yeah. when it's live in the electrical cabinet. But yeah. the ability to fix our own problems that way is so, so gratifying. Totally. Yeah. 3D printing, best. I think if you're a shop and you don't have a 3D printer, you just need to get a 3D printer. Because day one, you're going to go on a 3D printing binge and it's going to be nonstop for a month straight. Yeah. And then you kind of taper off and then you, you have been flow. Yeah, certainly there are things where I'm like, hey, I need to make, you know what? I could probably make that faster some other way. I can just take a scrap piece of plastic to the bandsaw and spend 30 seconds cutting out this little L-shaped thing that I need Uh and then screw it down here and it'll be my stop for this process or whatever. I don't need to 3D print a thing for it. But for me, the big advantage of the 3D printing when I'm trying out an idea, if I'm not sure it's going to work, is the ability to use parametric modeling Mm -hmm. and iterate and revert. So yeah, if I make a thing by hand, I can make a thing that works, mm-hmm. but if I want to make it slightly different, similar-ish, but slightly mm-hmm. different by yep. some known measurement, that's really hard to do. Yeah. And if I ever want to then duplicate it and say, okay, now we've done it, it would have been very possible to cludge together a knob sure. by hand out of materials and drill some holes and crash some magnets into there and have a knob. Yeah. But then duplicating it and saying, okay, design works, great print me 30 of them for every lathe in this entire manufacturing space, Uh that ability to, the instant you've got it done, scale it is so useful. Yeah. I love it. Hey, so now that you are, I just think back, I don't know how many episodes, but 
we were talking about filaments and I said, just my default go-to filament is going to be the carbon fiber filament. Are you finding that to be true? Do you like that uh, stuff? We don't use the carbon fiber hardly at all. We default to PLA tough. Okay. Yeah. And it's good enough for you mechanically. Yeah. Most of our 3d printed parts are not put in an environment where they're exposed to coolant. Mm -hmm. The big issue that I found with PLA parts over time is they just don't hold up well to machine coolant. Mm -hmm. Not a surprise. Sure. It's not really what they're for. Right. But for most of the things we do, we have perfectly acceptable success having a couple of different preset recipes for numbers of walls, mm -hmm. density of infill to control speed of print. If I want to try an idea out and I just need to make sure that it fits, mm -hmm. first go around two walls, five or 8% fill super fast, blow right through it, go test assemble it, make sure it's good. And then we'll, we'll use that one till it breaks. Oh, okay. And then go, okay, yeah, it lasted three weeks and then it cracked. Yeah, Great. I like that work. Reprint it with yeah. five walls and a 30% infill. Yeah, and probably a different filament if you had to. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe not even just increasing the walls and increasing the infill. Mm. We can make that part for a lot of things bomb-proof by changing nothing about the machine. I don't like changing out filaments. We have two bamboo labs, each with the four-roll AMS system on top. So we've got yeah. eight different filaments on tap at any given time. Okay. But I find the process of changing filaments just to be kind of annoying. And I also don't like to have opened filaments sitting on the shelf. I don't want to have to deal with dehumidifying them or putting them in a sealed container. We basically, we load them in the AMS. We have desiccant in the AMS. We have a, a humidity monitor in the AMS. Mm -hmm. And we leave the filaments in there till they're used up. Got it. So let me ask you this. Do you have a set formula that's outside? Because the bamboo has default formulas. Yep. Have you created a default formula for Henry Holsters and you just pick that? It's got all the thicknesses and all that? I have a default formula that I use in my slicer. It's not uh -huh. the same formula that Nick or Chris uses. They each have their own slightly different flavors. And things like, do you want a skirt around the part? How many passes do you want on the skirt? How much contact do you want between the skirt and the part to help your sure. adhesion? There's a bunch of different little things. And depending on the kinds of things that we make, there are certain kinds of things that I'm the only one who ever 3D prints them. Mm -hmm. And I often, when I'm designing, early on, I pick which face I'm planning to put against the bed and design where I'm filleting, where I'm chamfering, where I'm drafting faces to try to maximize my bed adhesion mm -hmm. and get an orientation of the part to minimize. So I'm not just drawing the part however I think of it and then spinning it around in space and going, which side of this should be down? I'm deciding right when I start which side should be down and then trying to draw it so that it needs as little support material anywhere on it as possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and that good. works well. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize, like when I told, well, Kyle, I mentioned him, I think uh, before, he's our guy. He was designing parts as if they were going to be machined. And I said, hey, let's try and eliminate some stuff because it's this overhang. You could print it on your side. You could print it this way. And also 3D prints have the orientation issue. So if you yeah. want it to be strong, you better not put any pressure that's going to want to pull apart the layers. It's got to be right. lengthwise, horizontal. Cross too, layer. So. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the prints I've seen him do are just like, oh yeah, dude, he's got it. He's nailed it. So nice. Okay. That's no, awesome. My employees, Chris and Nick 3D print a lot of things. And as they've gotten more comfortable, the ability of any other employee in the shop who needs something, uh -huh. it used to be anytime somebody needed something catted up and 3D printed, they came to me. And okay. I had to CAD it up and put it on the printer because we only had one printer. Now we've got two, yeah. which means I can have some idea and not have to wait in line for Chris or Nick to finish a print. Or if each of them has something they're working on, they've each got their own machine and they don't have to take turns. So we can get a lot more printing done. 
we're not really trying to make the bamboos run as fast as possible, but it's just like the, I'll take two VF2 standards over a VF2 SS, two 3D printers running side by side is going to get me more parts by the end of the day than one going at absurd speeds. Absolutely. Yep. And I can mix and match different colors. I can do more options with filaments. There's a lot of benefits to having. And we also have the Bamboo Handy app on our phones. And I was actually mm-hmm. at the shop Monday night, staying kind of late. And Nick texted me and he's like, hey, I have a print on the second on Bamboo 2 that has printed to a certain Z level and paused. Can you drop in the eight magnets that it needs and then resume the print? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, That's so and then he was watching me put them in from the interior camera on the Bamboo Lab. He was logged in on his phone from home. <laughs> And was watching me drop the magnets in, and then I resumed it and gave him a little thumbs up inside the printer. That's and awesome. Yeah. It's that technology has opened up a whole new stream of creative output for us. Yeah. Right. It made me think total, total pivot. An interview of Rick Rubin, okay. who's a famous music producer out in California. Uh huh. Yep. But he's recorded with lots and lots of big hip hop stars. Long beard, right? Was yeah, long, long beard, beard yeah. crazy hair, looks like a maniac. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. But is absolutely brilliant. He is. Incredible yeah. musician and producer. And I think it was on, might have been on Joe Rogan, but the question was like, what is it like working with different artists like Jay-Z and Eminem? Uh-huh. And what he said was, these guys have totally different approaches to their work. He's like, Eminem always has notebooks. He's never not writing. Wow. And most of what he writes never turns into anything, but he's just like, if he's not talking and he's not recording, he's sitting down and he's just scribbling and he's filling up notebook after notebook after notebook. And he's treating it like keeping hot glue flowing out of a hot glue gun. Like Uh keep the nozzle hot, keep the flow going, keep the words going. And then whenever he needs to come up with something, he's just got that going. And then he said, Jay-Z is completely the opposite. He'll sit down on the couch in the studio for like half an hour in complete silence, not talk to anybody, and then get up and go in the recording booth and completely from memory, composed entirely in his own head in that session, nothing wow. written down, deliver a complicated, complicated verse straight wow. through. Wow. And then if they have to do a second take, he'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Like he's put all the pieces together in his head. He's mentally rehearsed it. He gets on mic and then just delivers it cold. Right, man. Which is crazy. And those are two totally different approaches. Right. And for me, I'm very much more like the M&M approach, which is I want to have lots and lots of quick, fast, cheap ideas. One of the reasons why I dip my toes into so many stupid little prototyping projects that don't go anywhere is because I just want to say I need to take 30 minutes step out of the normal stream of stuff that I'm working on and just consider a new problem for Mm -hmm. half an hour and just give myself the ability to pedal for a few minutes and ride around and think about that part and then try to make something. And for that, 3D printing is great, but laser is king. Mm. Anytime I can develop an idea and it's a 2D laser cut part, the ability to quickly draw up just a quick DXF sketch, drop it on the laser laptop, and mm-hmm. cut it out of plastic or Tegris or whatever I'm using, cardboard even. Mm-hmm. That is so fast. Yeah. No, I love that. Like, when it comes to product or process creation, I'm very much like the, you know, who came to mind was Jerry Seinfeld. He keeps a yellow lined notepad with him at all times. And he's just jotting down little funny things or jokes. And then eventually they'll graduate to 
a part of his comedy act in a small club. And then if it reacts well, he'll polish it and bring it to the big stage. But I'm, I'm very much that same way because I was going through kind of like our development folder in Fusion. And mm-hmm. looking through there, I've just brain dumped so many ideas over the years that you could almost start a secondary work holding company with a bunch of mediocre products that would require lots of support, lots of fixing. Complicated to machine, difficult to assemble. Yeah, all that stuff, all this stuff. Very costly, would require unobtainium, those types of things. But th- that's part of the development process. I had a friend that he was getting into graphic design. And I said, hey, I got this little side thing. I want like a little logo for this Kickstarter campaign I'm doing. And I'd like to essentially throw you a bone, give you a shot. And he said, all right, well, it's going to be four grand up front and you're going to get four comps and one revision. I'm like, whoa, 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 you're just getting started. That's a lot to ask. If you were like a design firm, maybe. Uh, but no, I'm not going to do that. I'm hoping like you'll give me the buddy deal. If it's great, 500,000 bucks, something like that. And I realized that there's almost like an expectation that people create, including myself in our minds, that if I'm going to do work, I need to be compensated for it. And that's just not a healthy way of going about growing or building anything. A lot of times it's like, like I use my Wednesdays, my, it's kind of opposite of John Saunders plan words of John Saunders approach. He does days off in the shop. I do days on out of the shop and that's where I do a bunch of business development stuff. So on those days, a lot of those days, if you go back historically and look like what actually got accomplished that got put into production or into a process, a very low, low number of those, but the ones that did graduate they were after iterations, they're high quality, they were solid, they had good documentation, good communication, good structure, all that stuff behind it. And that was what actually won the design contest in my head. And I think if people like kind of embrace that, where you need to have a portfolio, and most designers have a portfolio of past work, if you're mm-hmm. just getting started in design, you should have a portfolio of present work just to show the customer And really, I'm not trying to show a customer. I'm trying to show myself and use my working. One of my six working geniuses is discernment. Like I'll create six different work holding products, but maybe there's a part of one of them that is rock solid. Let's hold on to that nugget. Let's see if we can implement it into another product at some point someday. Much healthier for me because I always need to be creating, but I don't put the pressure on being tenacious. Another one of my working frustrations being tenacious to just work hard, create and get it done so we can sell it. That's not life-giving to me. And ultimately, it's a detriment to the company if we're putting out mediocre products. Well, the idea that you should be compensated for your work doesn't necessarily require that you get paid for every revision. Mm -hmm. But there's an equally toxic trend, which is the, oh yeah, I'll pay you an exposure. Do something for me for free and I'll tell all my friends about it and they'll definitely pay you. They'll definitely buy stuff from you, but I want mine for free. Mm -hmm. And I do, in that regard, take the advice of Heath Ledger's Joker, if you're good at something, never do it for free. (laughs) And that's not a hard and fast rule, but there is something really valuable about reminding yourself, if you actually are delivering value, it's completely reasonable to be compensated on that. It's almost mandatory. It's almost disrespectful to not be compensated for it. And certainly the ball is in my court. If I offer to do work and I offer to do it at no charge, that's on me. If somebody approaches me and they ask me to do something and they expect to not have to compensate me for it, 
I have a problem with that. Right. If I'm yeah. asking somebody to do something, I expect to compensate them for it. Exactly how much and under what conditions, depending on their deliverables, all that's flexible. But certainly, if they decide not to be compensated for it, that's their call. Yeah. I'm not going to say, you have to let me pay you. Although oftentimes, I have had people do things for me and then I say, hey, send me a bill. Mm-hmm. Like, thanks for the thing. Send me a bill. Yeah, that's right. Been there too. Yeah. That's a two-way street. I think most entrepreneurs probably err on the side of being too cautious, mm-hmm. having a little too much imposter syndrome, being unwilling to bill enough, soon enough, mm-hmm. for enough different kinds of projects. Yeah. I was talking with the customer service team. There's four of us that kind of monitor like customer stuff. And I told one of my guys this months ago, I said, look, if someone sends you an email and says, hey, we're so-and-so, we're big, we got this exposure, we'd like to work up either a trade or posting, or I said, it's just a delete, tongue-in-cheek delete. We don't want to do business with people like that. Not because that's a preposterous thing, but people don't value what they don't pay for. So there's always going to be a cost associated with something, or else you're just not going to value it. We got an email and Manny said, hey, I want you to read this email. They're asking for a discount to trade for exposure. And they were a NASCAR team. And he said, but I just want to run it by you because they actually did a really good job in wording it. And it was the most polite, no obligation type of discount ask. Hey, we're a NASCAR team. We have this exposure. We'd like to work with vendors. If we can bring your products on at a discount and do some exposure, we'd love to work with you. If not, no problem. We're still going to place an order. That was the right way to ask for a discount. The answer is no, because we also have a YouTube channel. And the other thing is almost every time that I've traded a discount for exposure, we never get the exposure. Hey man, I'm going to do a video. Still waiting on that video several years later. Hey man, I'll do 20 posts. Huh? You did three, that type of thing. And so I would just say, look, you do your thing. We'll do our thing. We'll exchange the great medium dollars. That's it. Yeah. Well, there you can structure those kinds of discounts in such a way that, hey, you place your order at full price. And when you release the video, I'll partially refund your order. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Yeah. And I would be in your situation, you have a narrower range of higher dollar products. So Mm -hmm. the available discounts you could give are more substantial. Mm -hmm. Like for me, the stuff that I make is relatively cheap enough that if somebody has a YouTube channel and they've got a couple thousand followers and they want to do a short video on the holster, I am more than willing to consider sending them a holster Mm -hmm. because my cost in the product is low enough that it's worth it to me. But I give them a 50% discount on a $5,000 order no. Exactly. But giving your team the ability to say, hey, you have permission to extend a discount of up to this percentage under these terms. They pay full price. Mm -hmm. Once they produce the media, we get back to them and refund. They get back to us. When they produce and release the media, Uh the exposure, and then they contact us back with a link, I shouldn't have to hunt it down on their YouTube channel. When they publish the review of our thing, mm-hmm. it's on them to let us know, tag us, email us, et cetera. Sure. Then yeah. by all means, we'll go back. We wouldn't go back and say, yeah, I didn't really like the video. I'll give you 50 bucks off. <laughs> you can agree up, up front. If you publish a video, we'll give you X percent off 
back on your order. Sure. I think that as a thing that gets the money in your pocket, puts the ball in their court, gives them the complete control over whether or not they ever get that money back, Uh they have a deliverable. Ball's in their court. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. And if they decide not to do it or whatever reason, no big deal. Yeah. Influencer marketing and all that stuff is itself a whole field that so many people have so many different opinions on. Yeah. And lots of people do it badly. And it's new too. The whole influencer marketing thing, it's it's about a decade old, I'd say at this point. So there's going to always be emerging trends and studies. Hey, let's get back to the point, which was, I want to know about your lathe, your new deuce on. So the lathe has power. And I think we have an appointment next week to have it commissioned. And then we've got Iamka coming in to set up the bar feeder. Got it. And then after that, our first job, we've got a couple hundred three-eighths inch diameter titanium pins that we're machining for the company that we bought the lathe from, actually, for Samco. Mm -hmm. It's some part they need for an assembly that they're working on and we have their lathe now. And so they still need those parts made. And so we're picking up the bar stock and going to make those parts. So it'll be the first time I've worked with titanium. Ooh, wow. Exciting and fun. Wow. Your first lathe part is titanium turning. The first lathe part that I'm going to watch, I'm not programming it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Like, I'm going to I'm going to show up like one of those families who showed up with a picnic basket and a bottle of wine on the bluff overlooking Fort Sumter when they decided to fire on the fort. Let's, let's go see what happens. Yeah. Kaboom. Titanium and Pearson work holding, it's just uh, th- those don't cross. The closest thing we come to titanium is my EDC knife from Koenig and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to design some type of work holding product that can justify and also benefit from the need to use titanium or carbon fiber because I think they're the two best materials on the planet. But a dirty old cast iron old technology is just pretty decent for most work holding products. So, Yeah. The only thing I've been thinking about using titanium for myself, I really am fascinated by the flexure properties of titanium that you can make living hinges and integrated springs and other flexing parts that can survive a lot of fatigue and a lot of cycles and not break down. Right. And that gets my creative juices flowing. But the main place that I see titanium is just everywhere in the folding knife maker market, just everywhere. Oh yeah. Uh, I actually also got this cool pen from Daniel Osborne and Jenna at Oz Machine Tool. Oz oh Machine yeah, Company. sure. And it's really nice. It's a bolt action style pen that uses my favorite Pilot G2 refills. Uh-huh. And it's super lightweight, really s- slim and streamlined. And it's great. I love it. It's really fun. That's awesome. But turning titanium is a daily thing. Like, yeah, we have this machine. We do lots of titanium parts. That's enough outside my lane that I don't think we're ever going to go there. Yeah, yeah. I had to look up on Mark Rober's channel. He made that tiny Nerf gun. And I think they're called compliant mechanisms. I'm not going to watch the video right now, but where there's mm-hmm. nothing that moves, it's all just the design, which is pretty darn cool when you think of it from a manufacturing standpoint. How can I create a compliant mechanism? Well, like I've said before, the best blank is no blank. The best yeah. hinge is no hinge or a compliant hinge. That reminded me of an Elon Musk quote that I think we've mentioned before, or discussed before, which is the most common error of a smart engineer is to optimize a thing that should not exist. Classic Elon quote. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had the benefit. One of my best friends is John Hopman from Filsters, one of my main clients. And we have always seen eye to eye for our entire time designing holsters. We both like a subtractive approach. Mm-hmm. What can we take away from this to make it function better, simpler, easier to use, 
more reliable, less confusing, less ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Because we live in a world of feature creep. There's right. just feature creep everywhere. And the satisfaction of a single purpose tool that does one thing exceptionally well is so gratifying. Mm-hmm. And it's it's becoming so much more rare mm-hmm. that you have a thing that's just one thing. Yep. It slices, it dices, you can play video games on it. And also it's like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. The, the purity of a simple design that you've peeled away every extraneous thing from is super gratifying. And in the holster space, there's tons of companies where their whole idea is to make a modular, reversible, reconfigurable inside the waistband, outside the waistband, or appendix with a tall sweat guard or a short. Like, it, it's just Legos. You're mm-hmm. literally building Legos and jamming them in your pants. Mm-hmm. And it has all the added cost, all the complexity, all the increased yeah. risk of misassembly, lots sure. of fasteners to break or strip out. It's just, it's a house of cards. Yeah. I want nothing to do with it. One of our company principles is no half measures. Like we don't do Swiss army knives. We do dedicated cutting knives for the appropriate tasks. Because Swiss army knives are cool. They do all things, but they don't do all things poorly. Like the scissors are terrible. The little pocket knife is not great. The magnifying glass is too small and unusable. You want the right tool for that one particular job. No, no half measures, no quarter measures. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So what, when the lathe is all set up, do you feel like you're ready to hit the ground running? Okay, great. See you later. All right, let's load it up. Let's start cutting. Or do you think there's going to be like a learning curve? We're paying them for also for some in-house training just because I don't have any experience on that FANUC control at all. Yeah. And Chris, who's our lead programmer, has run FANUC lathes before. He's comfortable, but it's a newer version of the control. So he had not used any of the current touchscreen FANUC controls. And so just having somebody there training us inside and out on this control, on this specific machine to make sure that there are common shortcuts, improvements, hacks, things we need to know, or specific menus or syntax or things that might be a little bit different, Mm -hmm. that we get a chance to see those on our machine, in our space, on our own time. Yeah. So we're paying for training time. Okay. So it's probably the new IHMI interface, which is what I'm guessing. If it's touchscreen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, don't learn that either. It has a stylus. I'm like, oh, it has a stylus. Yeah, well, you're probably not going to use that either. You're probably going to, on the Hauses, our late later model Hauses, we've all turned the touchscreens off. Because when two dudes are sitting there talking about like, which tool or this thing or this line of G code, we're touching stuff. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. All right. Well, that's exciting. And then what's the quantity on this first order? I think just two or 300. It's not huge. It's a nice, easy, uncomplicated part. It just has a rounded end. It's got one cross hole and a flange. Mm. It's real simple. There's no live tooling or weird facing or anything. There's no boring. There's no threading. Just turn the profile, cross drill a hole, Mm. done. Great. And I think that hole is just a clearance hole for a little cotter pin, a retaining pin to go through this cross pin. Huh. Interesting. should be a relatively easy part to program, a great opportunity for us to get everything set up, get all the tools loaded, touched off, make sure our coolant's working the way we want, just get all the pieces working together. I'm excited to watch the little part outfeed conveyor start rolling these little parts out into a basket. Yeah, that's fun. 
Well, speaking of equipment, so this year I had only mentally committed to buying one piece of equipment, which was a, a better, larger CNC grinder, most likely an Okamoto. And I've talked in the previous podcast, the saga of trying to get a, another grinder in house. But I've been looking at another small lathe because we used to outsource some very small, not small, but just high quantity, low value, dinky little internal components. And I don't want to tie up $125,000 lathe with the bar feeder, 150 with the bar feeder and all the bells and whistles we got on it. So I thought, could we get just like a small little, almost like, a, what are those like chucker lathes, but automatic? So I went to the West Tech show last year and saw a Swiss machine because I really hadn't been around Swiss turning centers. They're and they so just cool. take up so much floor space. They and, are long. Yeah. And they operate with oil and there's a new liquid tool there that's not great. I listen to the Business of Machine podcast enough where like Grimsma will be describing stuff and it's either Saunders or me simultaneously or independently going, yuck, like oil on parts, Ooh. gross on the post-processing that requires. So I kind of don't want to go that direction. I like our standardized coolant that we use for milling and grinding. It works perfectly. We've got mm -hmm. the formula down. But I have been looking at these ones, and it, let me ask you if you've heard of this brand, Ganesh Machine Tools. Yes. Okay, that's interesting because they're in our neighboring city, Chatsworth, and they're from India because this is like where their headquarters are. They had a big presence here in Southern California, small compact machines. They've been rebranded, the owner, he ended up selling it, and then he bought it back years later. Great guy, Harvinder is his name. I've been looking at these because they fit that. First of all, they would fit in our facility where we could just load a three or four foot bar and it's going to make its hundred parts and we just, it, we don't have to tie up a big machine. So that's something I'm looking at. But with now in the last podcast, I talked about the vertical lift module. Now I can really justify the purchase of a vertical lift module because that will free up storage space so that we could put a small compact revenue generating lathe on our floor. So yep. I don't know if people want to email me or, or talk about their experiences, but I don't know enough about lathes. First of all, we're standardized with Doosan, but if there's other brands, maybe brands we've never heard of or, or I've never heard of that I should look at, please let me know. Jay at PearsonWorkHolding.com. I'm going to throw that out there. I so. definitely looked, pretty sure I looked at some Ganesh machine tools at last IMTS. Uh-huh. They were there. But I wasn't really in the market for anything that they were selling. It was sure. just like, oh, this is a brand I've never heard of before. Let me wander around their booth a little bit and just look at stuff. Uh -huh. That to me is one of the more interesting, if I've got an hour or two to kill on my last day at IMTS, and I'm curious, do you prefer to preload at the front end of the week or be there at the end of the show? Ooh, good question. I'm really it's a question guy. of how much free booth beer, how much free cheap booth <laughs> beer do you want? Because at the end of the day, Friday, when people are getting ready to start tearing down their booths, yeah, and you're like, yeah, I'm just taking it. I'm taking an Uber back to my hotel. I'm not leaving till tomorrow. And yeah, they got to roll this keg out of here. I'll have a second beer because the whole week they're like, yes, we can serve you one. I've not committed much brain power to a trade show <laughs> strategy. That's I had I had a great time. The very first IMTS, I ended up hanging out at a tooling booth with some guys I know. And they were getting ready to start tearing down the booth. And the guy's like, look, guys, I probably got about 10 or 12 beers left in this keg. There's four or five of you. Would you each of you guys just like two beers? And he just tapped off. So we were each standing there with two beers in our hands oh, in front of man. this tooling booth, talking about tooling, talking about cutters. And it was wow. that was my first IMTS. So there was 
just the joy of meeting all these different Instagram machinists, the first IMTS Insta machinist meetup yeah. at AB Tool and meeting Alfred and that whole great crowd. It was an yeah. awesome week. Was that 2018? So that was 2016, I think. 16. Let me think here. I spoke at the one at 2018. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That, and that think, was my first. I think, I think 2018 was my second IMTS. Your second. Okay, yeah. But, wow. oh, it was so fun. I had a great time. My feet were so sore. I really had trouble wrapping my head around the layout of the McCormick Place Convention uh -huh. Center at my first right. IMTS, which meant I did a lot of unnecessary walking. And it wasn't until 18 that I discovered they have golf carts as mm -hmm. little tram trolleys between the major buildings. So you can go mm -hmm. all the way from the farthest extent to the other end of the entire show mm -hmm. in like a little three or four minute tram ride. Wow. That was an unbelievable lean improvement for my IMTS experience. Wow. But I like to go a little later in the week because you can walk into booths and the salespeople are tired and they don't bother you. Oh, man. You can walk in and say, hey, I'm just looking at this or that. I'll ask you if I have questions. And you don't get them all chipper, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, trying to make a sale on their yes. first day. Like They've either had a great week and they're killing it. Uh -huh. And they're like, yeah, I don't need to make any more sales today. I'm good. Right. I've sold everything in the booth. I just demolished this trade show. Or they've had an absolutely miserable week. They're uh -huh. totally demoralized and they don't want to talk to you for that reason either. <laughs> and so you can go in the booths and you can look around at stuff and ask questions and they don't turn into long conversations. They don't yeah. turn into hard sells. They don't turn into the chummy buddy buddy, try to get to know you, ask what you do, background of your company. Just, yeah. Hey, man, I've got a couple questions about this machine. Thanks. Yeah. Have a safe trip back to wherever you're going. And the guy's yeah. just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I will not intentionally go to a trade show on the first day because you have lots of problems. People are like still doing like a soft setup and yeah, the swag's gone. It diminishes, but I'm, I'm not there for swag anyways. But no, when we went to West Tech, we went on the second day. We went to this, that other trade show, the five pack trade show. We went on the last day and it was noticeable. The crowds weren't as heavy. And yeah, the intensity at each booth wasn't there. Actually, gosh, I just remembered this. We were there early just because we took the Amtrak down to Anaheim and then shuttled over to the convention center. We were there early. I think the convention hall opened at 10 a.m. Right there, we were in line. We walked in. We had a plan. I said, we're going to go to this packaging company, this foam company, and this packaging company, and then we'll hit up automation. I said, let's go to the far right aisle and start walking. The first booth, there were three dudes. There were three of us. And we were clearly in an engaged conversation, like the three of us on the Pearson team. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys at the booth said to my guy, Elliot, hey, man, how's it going? And Elliot said, fine, kept moving. And so what kind of work do you guys do? And we're like beyond the booth. And he goes, oh, tooling. And he goes, great. What kind of tooling? He's like, sorry, man, I got to go. And the <laughs> dude said, oh, so that's how it's going to be. Yeah. Keep walking and use an expletive. And I was like, I what? heard this and I'm like, a fool <laughs> engages in this type of craziness. I'm no fool. I'm walking on. Like I was so freaking mad. That's so that's it, so weird. Like what happened to you? How bad has your trade show been that on day three of three, the first it's five seconds aggressive, of people walking through. Sell. Yeah. And I'm like, what the weird. heck? So for me, when people like exhibit that type of aggression, like my natural at this point in my life is just compassion. And this guy's got a crappy life. This yeah. is not about me. That's about him. 
moving yeah. on. So. Also at my first IMTS, the last day, because I, I wanted to be there as long as possible. I got there midweek and I stayed till the very bitter end of the show. Uh-huh. I was hanging out with the guys at the Swift car booth and Luke was like, hey, we're getting ready to put away all these demo cutters. You want a couple of half inch roughers? And I'm like, yes. Yes, please. Yes, I do. Like, I'll for- forget the stickers and the swag. Yeah. Send me home with some lightly used half inch Swift carb roughers. And uh-huh. I still have those. We don't use them that often. So they're still good. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> they really don't get used that often if I still got them from 2016 to now. So, what kind of brand? Swift carb. Oh, yeah. Those are great. Yeah. They make really nice stuff. Yeah. That was one of the. At the first IMTS, I walked onto the main show floor and I walked smack into the Okuma booth mm-hmm. and I walked right over to the M560V and I just drooled all over it like the kid licking a window in a bakery, like walking past the donut window and just oh, going, nah. Yeah, that's a great machine right there. Because I wanted that machine so bad. Frontline Fabrication, the guy's oh, yeah. name is also Andrew. Right. I have always hit the work he does on all those car parts is absolutely gorgeous. The finishes are insane. His choice of tool paths and texturing on those is awesome. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the first guys I saw using Swift Carb stuff, and I was blown away by yes. his results. Mm-hmm. And so when I had a chance to go look at an M560, I just stood there and watched them cut and cut and cut and cut. I was like, do you have any questions? And I'm like, nope, nope. I'm just watching. I just put my earbuds in, just listened to some music and just watched it. Yeah, that's awesome. But I was so excited. Like, I got some Swift Carb end mills, and I brought them home, and I'm like, but I'm putting them in a BT30 holder, <laughs> a little brother. I should probably not try to do Okuma M560 cuts on these. Yeah. No, we, I use Swiss Carb for many, many, Swift Carb for many, many years when before the HSM days. So it yep. was like big, heavy, high horsepower cuts slowly. So we yep. just moved away it's just over the years. I don't know why. It's typically availability with our vendors, local vendors. So The one thing I thought they did great that a lot of other vendors at the time were not doing is they offered a lot of their standard cutters in very fine increments of total flute length and length mm. of cut, which meant if you had a particular part that needed an exact, you could really buy a cutter that was going to be optimized for a specific wall height of a certain mm. part and not be overpaying for overly long flute length that turned your tool into a noodle or being forced to step down yeah. And make multiple passes with a half inch length to cut. So they really went in hard on, we offer a lot of fine divisions of length. So you can really get the shortest possible gauge length, total stick out as tight as possible, keep the rigidity up, and then really get that good quality wall finish. I think they should have done more to market the benefits of that. Mm-hmm. But I remember that really stood out to me at the show. Oh, they have all these different sizes. And from an inventory standpoint, that's a challenge for them. But from a performance standpoint, it made total sense. Yeah. Anyway, love it. our lathe is powered. I'll have an update for you next week after we get it all set up and get the bar feeder bolted down to the floor and start loading in some titanium. Obviously, Exciting. plans could change, schedule reasons, who knows what. It's all, of course. It's yeah. all preliminary until it's actual. Love it. But we're making progress. We're moving forward. And I'm really excited to see that machine run. And my kids are really excited to see that machine run. If we run that, those titanium parts on a day when they're not in class, Mm -hmm. because my kids are in school Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and at home Tuesday, Thursday, Mm -hmm. I may swing home, pick them up, bring them to work, Mm -hmm. and let them watch that machine run because they've all been talking about it. That's cool. That's cool. I love it. Fun times. Fun times.